Turn to the 40th Psalm we're going to look at today. We learn from the title of the Psalm that like many of the Psalms, it's a song. It was a song to be sung in the temple, in the choir of the temple. A song for the choir director, as it says in the title, a Psalm of David. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, David was the king of Israel for 40 years. Uh, He was the man after God's heart the one who replaced the disobedient King Saul, the choice of the people. Unlike Saul, who just went through religious motions, David was in a close relationship with God. God inspired David to write almost half of the Psalms and almost all of the Psalms within this first book of Psalms that we are nearing the end of with Psalm 41. Uh, David was Israel's hero, uh, but he also had many struggles in his life, as we're going to see in these first three verses. I'll begin by just reading the first three verses. I'll read from the ESV version, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Since we began our exposition in Psalms this go-around, this time around, we've been taking, you know, doing them in chunks. We started in Psalm 36. Uh, We've seen this theme of waiting. And waiting has been waiting in the background. In Psalm 36, we saw the infinite contrast between the evildoer and God. In Psalm 37, we revisited the evildoer. The psalm exhorts us to wait on God, particularly when we see evil prospering. If you want to look back at Psalm 37, look at verse 7, kind of summarizes that uh, idea. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. So wait on the Lord. Be still. Wait patiently, as he says. In Psalm 38, the psalmist, again, who is King David, found himself afflicted, at least partially because of his own sin. And amidst great pain and suffering, David, again, is silent. He's silent under the smarting rod of the Heavenly Father. If you look at verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 39, we see him waiting. But he's waiting with an expectation. Look at Psalm 39, verses 7 through 9. It recaps David's posture, if you would. It says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. King David knew what it was to wait. And he waited several decades uh, when Saul, I'm sorry, when Samuel recognized him to be the king, the future king of Israel. Consider his patience as he went through the persecution of his predecessor, King Saul. Even after the death of Saul, David waited another seven years to be the king of Israel. David exhibited great patience during the trial with his son, his rebellious son, Absalom. 
And in Psalm 38, amidst intense physical and emotional trials, he again waits. Well, this waiting comes to a triumphant expectation in Psalm 40, in the first verse. For David, waiting always involved expectation. Waiting was not sitting around and twiddling his thumbs. Waiting involved expectation. In Psalm 37, verse 34, he commanded this enduring expectancy. He said, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. There was a waiting, but there was also expectancy as to what was to come. For David, as with all children of God, waiting is never inactivity. We wait for something. We wait for healing. We wait for deliverance. We wait for salvation. We wait for our inheritance. Or we wait for God himself. As the psalmist says in Psalm 62, My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. This idea of waiting with expectancy is reflected in verse 1 of our psalm, which translated in English is, I waited patiently. But the original Hebrew repeats the same verb in two different constructs here. It's translated in English, I waited patiently, but it can be translated in Hebrew, the word is kavol kaveti, or I waited and waited. And the construct alludes to two ideas about waiting. There are two issues when it comes to waiting. One is endurance. We wait and we endure. And the other is expectation. We wait expecting God to answer. Now this waiting has an object. So it's kavo kavati Yahweh. I waited and waited for Yahweh, God. I waited and waited for the Lord. I patiently and expectantly waited for Yahweh. Under what circumstances is David waiting here? Well, as the psalm opens, we see David stuck. He's hopeless. He's helpless. He's enmeshed in a slime, a muddy pit. The picture is one who is hopelessly bound, bogged down in miry muck, kind of like a, a if you imagine a truck that's up to its hubcap in, in mud, spinning its wheels. It's the same wording that appears in Jeremiah 38, where the prophet describes himself as being abandoned and left to die in an old well. And the scripture says that Jeremiah sank down into the mud. We don't know the exact circumstances in David's life. It's a predicament. It's a miry bog. It could be a physical affliction. It could be depression. It could be some emotional affliction, a pit of despair that David is in, perhaps dug even by his own sin or by his enemies. We get a hint of the source of this affliction if you look at verses 12 through 15. It seems to be both pointing to internal as well as external struggles. Psalm 40, verses 12 to 15, says this. It says, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. So there's the internal struggle. He says, My iniquities have overtaken me. They're more than the hairs of my head. That's his personal sin against God. But then there are also external 
enemies and struggles. Look at verses 14 and 15. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. So here we have an external enemy. Whether that external enemy is physical, literally a person, or spiritual as a uh, Satan himself, or whether it be God-haters, human beings who hate God. They're seeking to snatch away his life. They're delighting in his hurt, and they're even mocking. They're saying, aha, aha, over his failure. It seems to be so that there's a combination of trials that are buffeting David here. He's leaving, it's left general in the psalm. It's not specific. We don't have a specific incident here. And that is sometimes a blessing, isn't it? Because we can take that and apply it to our own circumstance. Whatever miry bog you are going through, it frees us to apply this to ourselves, through our difficulties, through our struggles, both within and without. A desolate pit, a miry bog are metaphors. He's not literally in a pit. These are metaphors of feeling helpless and hopeless. Have you ever been there? And by the way, this hopelessness is not at odds with the hopeful expectation of verse 1. He's waiting with expectation, but yet he's in a miry bog. So David is hopeless to rescue himself, but he's hopeful as he waits for God to save him. See, expectation is not merely being optimistic. It's not positive thinking. It's not life give you lemons, make lemonade, right? There's a hopeful expectancy by which the Christian lives that's distinctively different from optimism. Al Mohler recently said, I don't think Christians should ever be optimistic. I think they should be hopeful. Optimism is presumptuous. Hopefulness is Christian. There's an important distinction here. And it helps us understand that faith, when people talk about faith, they're not, it, the scripture does not talk about faith as positive confession. True faith re- actually includes a hopelessness in self. And at the same time, a hopeful expectancy in God. So we can apply this. What miry bog are you in right now? What areas of your life do you feel have become hopeless? Maybe it's an unsaved spouse or a child. Years and years you're praying and wondering, will it ever change? Will this circumstance ever change? Maybe it is a personal sin that you've struggled with for a long time. Maybe a bad or even a destructive habit. Maybe it's self-pity or laziness. Maybe it's a dead-end career or a financial hole that you just can't seem to get out of. Or any circumstance in life that just makes you seem like you're in an earthly prison and you have no hope of escape. Others around you and others around David would probably say, come on, David, suck it up. It's not that bad. Be positive. you got to be positive. Don't you know there's worse people? Don't you know there's starving people living in India? Be positive. Do something. After all, you know what they say. 
God helps those who help themselves. Perhaps you've heard that about your desperate pit. Just seems like the words only enmesh you more into the miry mud. God's answer to the downcast soul is put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. You're not going to rescue yourself. Psalm 40 illustrates for us the helplessness and the hopelessness of a desolate pit and a miry bog. And though David can do nothing to help himself, he waits on the Lord with expectation. It's this kind of expectancy, this enduring expectancy is another way of saying David believed God. David had faith in God. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus uh, tells us the parable of the ten virgins who are all waiting, all waiting for the day of Psalm 45 when the bridegroom comes. And it says all ten waited and all ten fell asleep while they were waiting, but only five were prepared. Five were ready when the bridegroom came to go with the bridegroom. Ten out of ten waited, but five out of ten waited with expectation or faith. This is the kind of waiting that we're talking about here in this psalm. That's a, a, a waiting that is synonymous with saving faith. Brothers and sisters, even when you can do nothing, You can believe, right? You can have faith. That's the beauty of the Christian message, is that we offer the hope of the gospel to those who are hopeless. Even a 38-year-old invalid, as we saw last week, blind and lame, with no hope for himself, could be saved. Brethren, the more that this world spirals into hopelessly dark conditions, the greater the power of the gospel to deliver hope to hopeless people. That's the kind of waiting. Wait on God with that enduring expectancy. Verse 1 continues. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. We don't know how long David was waiting, but at the right time, God answered David's expectation by pulling him out of the pit, setting his foot upon a rock, from slimy mud with no footing to the strong support of a rock. From danger and peril, he's suddenly now safe and secure. Now we can... I believe, rightly apply this to our own personal trials. But this is also an allegory of salvation. This is the testimony of every Christian in one form or another. Today, if you're here in Christ, this is your testimony. The first three verses of Psalm 40, along with verse 17, look at, look at the end of the psalm, look at verse 17. Common to every Christian's testimony, look at verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. We are all, like the psalmist, helpless, hopeless, poor, and needy. Even if you have gained the whole world, even if you have all the world's wealth, possessions, fame, influence, everything that this world wars for, spiritually 
Every human being is stuck in a miry bog with no hope of escape. Sin casts us into a desolate pit from which there is no escape. Bogged down by our sin, we're threatened to sink down even further into death unless God would deliver us. Unless God, the deliverer, reaches down and drags us out of the pit. That's your testimony, brother, sister. You were in a hopeless place. You were in a pit of despair. You were poor and needy. But God took thought of you. I mean, how different is this from the world's idea of what salvation is? Picking yourself up, being that self-made, self-saved person. I don't need anyone else. I did it myself. I'm self-made. I picked myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm a self-made person. I have self-confidence, self-esteem, and I'm self-determination. And God helps those who help themselves. Never a more wicked lie was created in the pit of hell. The devil would love for you to believe that God helps those who help themselves. In reality, the more that you trust in self, the more you dig a deeper pit for yourself the more spiritually you fall into bondage, deeper and deeper bondage. Oh, you may be very successful on earth, but your end is going to be the pit of destruction forever, hell itself. My friend, may God deliver you from such. May you find your rest in God, only in God will your soul find rest, the psalmist, the psalmist says. Only from him comes salvation. You cannot save yourself. The only way out of your pit, your spiritual pit, the only way out is to die to yourself and live for and exalt the one who alone deserves glory and honor and praise. Seeing God as his Savior and Deliverer, now David sings a new song. He says a song, or actually the word is the singular form of the word psalm of praise, a psalm of praise. Look at verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song or a psalm of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now David's once mute mouth extols the praises of God. He says, God put this new song in my mouth. He has renewed eyes. He sees God as the source of inspiring him to write this psalm. This is the new song that is sung with his mouth. But it's not just the mouth. Look at verse 8. It comes from a new heart that he's received. Verse 8, second half of verse 8, actually. He says, your law is within my heart. So out of the abundance of this new heart... He now sings praises to God. If you have trouble praising God, you need to do a heart examination. You need to say, do I have a new heart? Because a new heart will naturally praise God. This praise has a purpose. And yes, it is to worship God because God is worthy of praise. And David, I'm sure, is excited for the opportunity to sing praises to God. But there's another purpose here. Look at verse 3 again. This new song, the second half, is what? That many would see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So David sees his new song as a testimony. He, he's there to testify to others that they may put their trust in the Lord. 
He's saying, I trusted in the Lord. Hear this that you may trust. And so Psalm 40 is a call for us to bear witness to others of our great God. If you're saved, praise God. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven one day. I'm going to get a new body. Hallelujah. But today, it becomes our desire, our mission, while on earth, to share this life-giving message with others. And yes, it's done by sharing the gospel, of course, but it's also through the proclamation of your gospel-wrought testimony. People need to hear what God has done for you in your life so that they too may trust in him. We're blessed as elders to sit down with new members coming into the church to hear the testimony. And, we, and then we all get to hear them, but we kind of hear the longer version of what ends up being said publicly. And it's such a blessing to be able to hear. Because as much as testimonies differ in their specifics, they're very much the same in their essence. The te- everyone's testimony is, I was in a miry pit and God took me out. And that's why testimonies are powerful, because they show, they bear witness to the power of God in an individual life. And we should be sharing them with one another. Uh, Look in uh, verses 9 and 10. Uh, David has a very broad audience in mind that he wishes to share his testimony with. Psalm uh, 40, verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David wants the gathered people of God to know his testimony. The great congregation refers to the gathering of God's people. Brethren, we need to hear how God is working in your life. I know that God is working in your life. We know that because he works in our hearts. He works in our lives. We need to hear this. We're blessed the few times a year that we hear testimonies of our new brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they're going through baptism or becoming members of the church. But we need more. We need to hear more of how God is working in your life. He is doing great things. I'm not talking about, I was sick last week, I had a cold, and this week I'm better, God healed me. I'm talking about an undeniable work of God where you know that it is Him at work and you just can't keep it in and you need to talk to your brothers about it. You need to talk to your brothers about God, your Father, His mercy, His faithfulness, His steadfast love in the great congregation. Quite honestly, it's something that we don't do enough here. And and we will make time when we hear how God is working. If you have a desire to to let the congregation know how God is working, your your testimony, we will make time. We'll make a way for that. Sermons are great. But there are people in the body of Christ going through specific things that only your testimony would minister to them. We need to hear it. When God delivers us, Brothers and sisters, we must not remain silent. Praise Him. Make His powerful deliverance and deeds and attributes known in the great congregation. 
Psalm 40 leaves us no doubt that proclamation of God's greatness is a public act. Not like Psalm 39. Remember Psalm 39? David is sealing his lips. He's mute. He doesn't want to speak. But here he sees his responsibility now because God has answered him and he's got to tell others. Even in his own, even of his own troubles, he, he, he's not hiding anything. He, he's taking care here to share among God's gathered people. And Psalm 40 gives us a perfect model. If you ever have an opportunity to share your testimony, open to Psalm 40. Let it be a model for you. We need to be able to tell one another in the church, I'm poor, I'm needy, I'm a sinner. And I was dug, I dug such a pit for myself that I could never get out of. But the Lord thought of me. And He opened my ears and He delivered me. Common testimony, the first three verses and the 17th verse. Drew me up from the pit of destruction. I'm poor and needy, but the Lord took thought of me. Has God done this for you? Does He not continue to do this for you? Brothers, sisters, may God open our lips so that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Verse 4 is a general statement. We often see this in Psalms. Things go from very specific to general. Psalm, uh, verse 4, blessed is the man. So here's the general principle. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. General precept, David wants everyone to know. This testimony that I have is not just good for you, not just good for me. You know, sometimes when you share the gospel with the audience, they say, oh, that's good for you. I'm glad that works for you. No, this is a general principle here. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who does not turn to the proud and those who go astray after a lie. This applies to all who trust the Lord. It's our common testimony. I was in a desolate pit. I was without hope, and the Lord showed up and took me out. And that's not just good for me, because what He's done for me, this is what verse 4 is basically saying, what He's done for me, He'll do for you. You trust in Him too. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord His trust. Let me ask you today, have you trusted Christ? Uh, Or are you turning to this world, those who go astray after a lie, or the proud of this world? Where else are you going to find deliverance from the miry bog of your sin? Where? How foolish to look in the solutions of this world. A world that spurns God and His ways. Have you trusted Christ? If not, I would call upon you today. Trust Christ. He alone will deliver you. He will take you out of the miry bog. As we move to verse 5. As we often again find in Psalms, David goes from speaking about God to speaking to God. Verse 5. You, talking to the Lord, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Knowing that he has been delivered now, his heart is overflowing. All right, he's gotten past the waiting. Now he knows the deliverance has come. 
He knows that it's only God that could save him. He's no longer mute, as we saw in Psalm 39, where he was, he thought he would be happier if God would turn away from him. Remember that? Now, he sees it's a great blessing that God was mindful of him. He marvels, is what he's doing here. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. Like Psalm 139. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. What God is there like our God? Infinite in majesty, eternal, sovereign, transcendent, yet he condescends to take thought of you. Hallelujah. None can compare with him. And David's heart is full of rejoicing now, and he wants others to join. Look down at verse 16 of our psalm. Psalm 40, verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Rejoice. Be glad. God is great. Continually. If you love salvation, we have a cry here. We have a song in our heart. Great is the Lord. God is great. Shout that from the rooftops. Listen, don't allow the Muslims control over this truth in their profession to their false God. You boldly proclaim God is the Lord. He is great. We need not be ashamed of that. God's greatness is throughout the psalm. It it pervades the entire testimony of of David here. Look at verses 10 and 11, how he exalts the attributes of God. Psalm 40, verse 10. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And then verse 11. As for you, O Lord... You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. He doesn't want to talk about himself. He wants to exalt God. Even the miry pit that he was in was no occasion for him to wallow in self-pity. He only mentions the miry pit because he desires to exalt God who delivered him out of it. His single desire is to extol God. He exalts His mercy, His faithfulness, His righteousness, His steadfast love. And we went through all those, if you want to go back and listen to Psalm 36, where I defined what each of those are in their original Hebrew. I won't do that again. But what I want you to notice here is how God-centered David's testimony and praise is. And consider, by way of application, when you have opportunities to share a testimony, is it more about you or is it more about God? When you have a desire to share your testimony, or if you're given an opportunity to speak in a public se- a setting, let your boast be in God. I want to read to you, maybe that's my way to get into this, because I was really blessed by this uh, Reformation 21 blog by Mark Jones that criticizes the flattery that we see in reform circles. Now, I kind of still, even after 20 years, consider myself a little bit of an outsider from reform circles because I kind of came into reform circles in the last 20 years. But as soon as I did, I, I, I saw this immediately. Reform folk love to boast in people. 
And this article is so good. Uh, it's called, Thou Shalt Not Flatter at Conferences. And Jones really nails this worldly attitude. And he calls for repentance. Let me read you some of it. He says, There are certain acceptable public sins in the reform world. In my experience, flattery is the acceptable sin on the popular conference circuit and in social media circles where people are angling for approval from their superiors. If you want to hear a good obituary of a living person, listen to how certain speakers are introduced before they give their talk at a conference. And he gives an analogy. He says, imagine introducing the Apostle Paul at a conference today. Instead of thanking God for the good and faithful servant, we might hear, I'd like to welcome the Reverend Dr. Apostle Paul, who has more reason to have confidence in the flesh than anyone else here. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. We're so happy to have the most blameless person with us, who is also the greatest of all the apostles. It was Paul's own desire, he goes on to say. It was Paul's own desire to make sure Christ had the honor and glory. Since God is jealous for his glory and the glory of his Son, Paul's resume was marked by weakness, sufferings, and persecution. And then finally, Jones makes a plea. And he says, it seems to me that Americans have a particular penchant for flattery and hyperbole. It is so common that they may not even be aware of how bad it appears. It would be nice, I think, he says, it would be nice, I think, if we would ease off the excessive praise of individuals in public, remember, and here's this is so key, he says, remember, flattery is ultimately harmful. Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. He says, may, finally, he says, may we cut out flattering lips and simply acknowledge and praise God for faithful servants of Christ so that God's people are left in no doubt who the glorious one is. We're so bent to idolatry, aren't we? We like to flatter and we like to flatter ourselves. And many times when our testimonies are opportunities to boast in ourselves. And we need to recognize this. Speak less of self, more of Christ. Remember, Christ is the hero of your testimony. Yes, it's your story, but remember... What did you contribute to this? You're stuck in miry mud. You're hopeless and helpless. You're poor and needy. And Christ is the Savior and Deliverer who in his steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness and righteousness and grace rescued you. Now, if you noticed, we're working through this psalm from end to end and coming to the center. I believe, as well as other commentators believe, that the climax of Psalm 40, and I believe the New Testament bears this out, that the climax of Psalm 40 is actually in the middle. Commentators would even suggest that verse 7 is the, is the climax with the words, Behold, I have come. So the verses we have left here, verses 6 to 8, let's read that and consider that as our last point. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written on my heart. 
First, notice. Sacrifice and offering you've not delighted. And there's that lie I'm going to come back to. You've given me an open ear. But then he repeats the thought, burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Now, David is not denigrating animal sacrifice here. Sacrifices and offerings were required under the law of God. And we read of God delighting in the sweet-smelling savor of a sacrifice. So what's going on here? Is David getting some kind of new revelation that's contrary to Scripture? Not at all. What's going on here is David has a very biblical, even New Testament, understanding of what a sacrifice is. It's, it's almost as if he is speaking these words from the perspective of the New Testament. He's affirming the truth that the animal sacrifices that were prescribed in the Torah by God are not the ticket to God's presence. It's not you go through the motions and you're good to go. They may have been necessary, but they are not sufficient. The idea that salvation would come from a ritual has been carried on by many religions today. If you do this, if you do that, if you make this pilgrimage, if you eat this food, if you celebrate this day, if you get baptized, if you're confirmed, if you do some ritual, you're good to go. Judgment day, you made it. Ancient Judaism, no ex- no exception. In their belief, they believed they were saved by their ritualistic offerings, temple worship, the, uh, the Sabbath. These are the things that separated them. And they did these things apart from a contrite heart and just deeds, so much so that Israel's worship became a stench to God. And he rejected their worship. There's a strong indictment. There's many in Isaiah 1. There's some in the Psalms. But let me just read one from Amos chapter 5. Because this is so powerful. When God rejects their offering, their, their offering that he commanded them to offer. In verses 18 to 23, I'll summarize it. You could read the whole thing as Amos 5, 18 to 23. He says, Woe to you who desire the Lord's day. Is not the Lord's day darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise, this is God speaking. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me with burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. The melody of your harps, I will not listen. David knew this firsthand. He knew the weakness of ritual. Why? Because his predecessor, King Saul, surrendered his crown for failing to understand this point. That it was not about the sacrifice. What was important as Samuel tells Saul, is not sacrifice, but obedience. That's what mattered to God. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul just presumed that he could disobey God's commands and that he could take this burnt offering and peace offering and make that peace offering at the altar himself instead of waiting for the priest to come. So he says in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 13, he says, 
As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel came. Now the prophet comes. The prophet says to Saul this. He says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of your God with which he's commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will, shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. Who's that? David. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This was finally fulfilled ultimately at the end of 1 Samuel with the death of Saul. But practically in chapter 15, just two chapters later in 1 Samuel 15 where Saul again disobeys God. This time God commands him, slay the Amalekites, slay them all, everything. And Saul takes it upon himself to disobey God and bring the sacrifices and offerings back. And then he justifies his action, 1 Samuel 15, 21. Saul says this, The people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than to the fat of rams. For a rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And then David the man after God's heart who Samuel spoke of, comes in and he understands in Psalm 40. And what he's basically saying is, I'm not offering just merely sacrifices. And rather than you demanding sacrifices in worship, what Yahweh really wants, what pleases him, is a willingness to listen and obey. In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you've not required. And in between there in verse 6, we have this difficult phrase. The ESV translates it as, but you have given me an open ear. Literally in the Hebrew, it's ears you have dug for me. Apparently some kind of idiom, perhaps in Hebrew. We can imagine, dig out your ears. It doesn't literally mean go get a, a shovel and stick it in your ear. It means... Your ears, you dug for me, you, you've opened them for me. And so the, the translators uh, translate that rather than literally as you've opened my ears. The New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10 translated, translates it as a body you have prepared from me. Some believe taking from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. But likely what's going on here is that this is a Hebrew idiom. Ears that are willing to listen, and dug out ears are ears that are willing to listen and obey. Ears that not merely hear and that it vibrates on the, uh, the little three bones in the ear and vibrates against the ear canal and the, the, the eardrum. No. Ear, when, when the Bible talks about hearing, it's talking about obedience. Ears that do not merely hear but carry out that which they hear. And you get the same idea in verse 8, where the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O God, your laws in my heart. In other words, I'm not just going to go through the religious motions 
of offering sacrifice. I'm not going to just go through the religious motions of, of going to church on the Lord's Day. I'm going to be ready to listen and to do your will. That's what ears that have been dug out means. New ears given to you by God that were once deaf but can now hear. Same idea in in Isaiah 50, if you'd like to turn there, uh, the song, the servant song, it's beautiful. Same idea as, as expressed in Psalm 40, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 6. Isaiah 50. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is Jesus, one of the many messianic prophecies. It's interesting here that it's linked to the open ear. The messianic servant is given an open ear. The one who offers his beard to be plugged, plucked and his face to be spit on, clearly a reference to Christ, is the one who had his ear open. The one who, was, who obeyed God. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, are clearly messianic, even... Even the rabbis in the Old Testament recognized that. Some of the rabbis recognized the messianic implications of verses 6 through 8. But we know that because the writer of Hebrews quotes it. So in closing, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to see they're David's words, but just like we saw in the reading earlier in Psalm 45, they were the words of the psalmist, but they're also the words of the Messiah. These are Jesus' very words. It's like Christ shows up in the middle of the psalm. And he says, behold, I have come. You're delivered. Well, now the source of your deliverance is here. The one who took you out of the miry bog, here I am, he says. Look at uh, Hebrews 10, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 40 to support the idea that Christ fulfilled the purposes of the Old Testament sacrifice. Bulls and goats are unable to take away sin. Jesus came, the one who is written about in the scroll of the Old Testament came. Jesus came to do the will of his Father by perfectly obeying him. Let's look at Hebrews 10. One, let's start at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Now skip down to verse 5, same idea. For it is impossible for the blood of of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, okay, Christ's words, Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, 
verse 8, when he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. In doing this, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, what will? The will of Jesus, who's come to do the Father's will. By that will, we are being sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sacrifices, offerings, religious ritual, put it in a New Testament context, come into church, being baptized. Is it just ritual or are you obeying God? God is pleased with the open ear. That's what the open ear alludes to. The ear that is dug out by God, that is open to hear, to listen, and to obey. But alas, David was not perfect. It is true. To obey is better than sacrifice. Yes, but who has obeyed perfectly? It is true. I've come to do your will. Every Christian says that. I've come to do your will. We all have the desire to come and do God's will. But who has done so perfectly? That's why Christ had to come in bodily form, in his incarnation. That's what Hebrews is celebrating, the incarnation, the prepared body of his son, a body that could live in this fallen world and still honor and obey God perfectly, even die in obedience, enter heaven on his own merit, God was pleased with him, pleased with him in a way that no number of animals could ever have fulfilled. And it's based on his perfect life that we then, who are in Christ, may also enter freely into the presence of God.